to have uh, Professor Yi from Fudan University. And uh, he is a uh, uh, professor of international relations. He was a uh, former dean of the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at the Fudan University. Uh, Fudan is one of the top universities in China. Uh, Professor Yi has many titles and he has published uh, 150 papers and articles on international relations. And uh, we are very happy to see so many LC students here today. And this evening, he's going to talk about uh, the China peaceful rights and continued diplomacy. And it is an interesting topic, and many LC students might be uh, like to know uh, what is it. And uh, Professor Ni is going to give us uh, uh, explanation and his interpretation of this topic in detail. Now let's welcome Professor Ni. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, my dear fellow students, uh, my fellow colleagues, uh, thank you very much, Professor Lu, for your very kind introduction. Uh, it's a great honor and pleasure for me to be here tonight for this big event. My thanks, first of all, go to the Dean of Confucius Institute here on British side, uh, Dr. Dick Byrne, and also my thanks to, to Professor Lu, the Chinese Dean, and my thanks also go to Professor Luho and Professor Chao Li for their kind invitation and careful arrangement. You know, the Confucius Institutes are a great creative practice of Chinese cultural relations with foreign countries. And first, so I would like to take this opportunity to congratulate the Confucius Institute at London School of Economics here for their great accomplishments made in the past a couple of years for the promotion of cultural academic and educational exchanges between China and the UK. Today's visit reminded me of my past two visits to London over 10 years ago. Over 10 years ago, I visited London and I had the opportunity to visit here. Though my previous two visits were shot, memories always remain fresh. So today I am here again with this renewed friendship. So I'm so pleased, so excited today to have this opportunity to share with you my own experiences and views on the topic of common interest. The title of my tonight's topic is about China's peaceful rise and its new diplomacy. I would like to start by saying a few words about 10 years of cultural revolution in China between 1966 to 1976. I believe that most of you were not born yet by that time. 
You know, those 10 years uh, turned out to be a disaster for China. <coughs> Class struggle prevailed all over the country. Economy collapsed. Schools and universities closed down. China suffered for almost 10 years. At that time, I was just a little over, I was over my 20s, early 20s. I experienced that period of the time. 10 years of cultural revolution resulted into poverty, isolation, and chaos. I would like to use these three words to describe the situation in China almost by the end of the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976. At this critical moment, Deng Xiaoping came up with a grand idea of opening up and reform. That was a start for China's renewal from the Cultural Revolution. You know, during that period of time, I had a couple of opportunities to visit some remote areas in China. For instance, I went to northwestern part of China, Ningxia Autonomous Region, where I saw a lot of poverty. I was shocked. I saw with my own eyes how one peasant's family had only one cover of one pair of travelers. Wouldn't have problems. When mother went out, daughter had to stay home with straw cover her body. I saw it with my own eyes. So you can you can hardly believe how poor China was right after the Cultural Revolution. How isolated China from the outside world. And China was there, China was found in a state of chaos, particular political chaos. So this is what Jason I said. At this critical juncture, Deng Xiaoping was arranged back, was arranged back, and he came up with a grand idea of reform and open policy. By reform, China was step by step able to change the situation in China, shake off poverty. By opening up, China changed the state of isolation. By doing so, China very quickly put an end to political chaos at home. So in this sense, we can see that reform and opening up brought China new hopes for its renewal. And then, you know, China started its reform with focus on uh, economic reform in the countryside, very different from the Pelotroika and Glasno of former Swedish Union. They started their Pelotroika and, and Glasno with uh, a reform, you know, with focus on reform in the cities, right? Political reform and in the cities. China studies the economic reform in the countryside, and we succeeded in the first part of reform open policy from late 70s and early 80s to early 90s. In, 90, in 1992, 
Deng Xiaoping made an important southern tour. And during his tour, he made uh, very, very important remarks, calling the whole country to shift its focus on reform from a planning economy to market economy. So start from, starting from the early 90s of the last century, China started give up its old, outdated planning economy and started to introduce market economy, because we, we, we said with Chinese speeches. And then uh, in the early this century, in 2001, China succeeded in joining WTO. That's another landmark of China's reform and open policy, because from that time up, China started to integrate itself with that of the world economy. So since the early this century, you can see China's economy kept developing very, very fast, even faster than we expected. In sometime in 2003, now I still remember probably in on November, December of 10, December of 10, Chinese, the, the then Chinese Premier Wen Jiabao visited Harvard University and I happened to be there because you know, I spent some time at Harvard in the early 80s, last century. In fact, I was one of the first batch of Chinese scholars at Harvard University doing post-research in international relations. So during my homecoming <coughs> visit to Harvard, I happened to be there and I listened to Premier Wen Jiabao's speech on yes, December 10th. And during his speech, Wen Jiabao said to the effect, he said, under reform and open policy, China is ready for a peaceful rise. This is the first time that China, top leaders of China, declared to the whole world that China was ready to have a peaceful rise. December 10th, 2003. 16 days later, on December 26th, at a forum to mark the 110th anniversary of Mao Zedong's birthday, the then President Party Secretary Hu Jintao made an important speech in which Hu Jintao said, China is determined to take the road of peaceful rights. So now General accepted that China launched a peaceful rise by the end of 2003 and early 2004. So in a sense, that China's peaceful rise was a result, was an out, out, outcome of China's reform and open policy of almost uh, over 30 years. Just now, I touch upon a little bit uh, China's reform open policy, how China reform open policy developed into peaceful rights in retrospect. When we look back, the evolution of China's reform open policy and peaceful rights, I think at least we can uh, reach some pre preliminary conclusions. 
of China's rise. So I would like to offer some of my remarks very briefly. Number one, I think China's peaceful rise is the logic development of China's reform and social policy in the past over 30 years. So in the sense that China's peaceful rise is the continuation of China's reform and, and open policy. China's peaceful rise is not something different. It's not something entirely different from China's peaceful, China reform and open policy. It's a natural logic development of China's reform and open policy, which, start, which was started in, just I described to you, in the shortly after the end of Cultural Revolution. The second remark I would like to make is that China's peaceful rise is part of the rise of Asia. China's peaceful rise is not something isolated from Asia or even from the world. China's peaceful rise is a part of the Asian rise, Asian peaceful rise. Uh, once I remember that Deng Xiaoping said, the 21st century might to be a century for Asia, but the precondition for making 21st century to be Asian century is that those countries like including China, India, and some other important Asian countries would develop themselves into a medium-sized, medium-level developed country. If China, India, and some other Asian countries could develop to reach that level, the medium-level developed country, then Deng Xiaoping said, that might be the time for the center, new century to be a center for Asia not before that. So China's peaceful rise is not isolated. While China developed, was developing very fast, China very much hoped that other Asian countries will develop together with us so that, the make, so that we can make Asia, make the century of next century, <coughs> not next century, 21st century, be a century for Asia. So China never, you know, never for, for single moment thought that our peaceful life would be something isolated, right? Our peaceful rights is, should be and is part of the peaceful rights of Asia. So this is the second remark I would like to make. The third remark I would like, I would like is that China's peaceful rights takes time. It's a, it's a long process. Although China had, has been developed very fast in the past over 30 years since the beginning of reform and open policy, we have been meeting a lot of challenges. You know, China's economy has, has been always beset of a lot of problems and difficulties. And we can list some of them there. Look at the, <coughs> the, the, the left, 
in the increasing lack of natural resources in China. Look at the very much serious pollution problem. Right. Look at the the, the, the the unfair you know structure, economic structure that we still have, including some of the financial structures. And look at the widening gap between the rich and the poor. The widening gap between the coast cities, coast areas, and the interior of China. <coughs> and we have a lot of problems facing. So, <coughs> so it takes a long time. It takes to probably take another couple of generations before China really you know, reaches the goal of a peaceful rise. During that long period, process. China needs a stable and peaceful environment. Because a peaceful and, and a stable environment in a should definitely will be very important to preconditions for China's peaceful rights. Number four. There are three determinant factors about peace, China peaceful rise. I always tend to, you know, believe that these three factors are so decisive. So, so sometimes I call the three principles. Number one is China rise. China's rise is in peace. Second, China's rise is by peace. Third, China's rise is for peace. So here I use three different propositions to describe the three very different principles. When we talk about in peace, I mean China's rise needs a peaceful environment, just now already mentioned. When I said China peace, China's rise is by peace, I mean that China, definitely China supports any any position to solve any regional and international disputes through peaceful means, including our own issue of Taiwan, Taiwan issue. That we are supportive of the idea and the position to solve all domestic, regional and international disputes through peaceful means. These are very, very important principle for China's peaceful rights. And thirdly, for peace. The ultimate purpose of China's rise is for peace. For regional peace and for world peace. China's rise is not, not for something else, just for peace, for peace and stability. So China's rise would be in peace, by peace, and for peace. These are the three determinant factors, or sometimes called the three important principles guiding China's peaceful rights. And these three determinant factors or important principles call for peaceful diplomacy for China. So this is the interrelationship between China's peaceful rights and China's peaceful diplomacy. Why China's role and 
definitely is or is is practicing or will practice practice peaceful diplomacy because it is it, it is decided by these very important determining factors of China's peaceful rise. China's peaceful rise determines that China will pursue a peaceful diplomacy and further improve our relationship with other countries. Now recently I am doing a project focused on China's new progressive. So this is a final result of my research project. This is only some initial ideas about China's new diplomacy. Now, what is new with China's diplomacy? My preliminary idea is, number one, that China's peaceful China new diplomacy should be focused on promoting a kind of new big power diplomacy. The first orientation is to promote new big power diplomacy. By big power diplomacy, I mean first of all how to handle <coughs> China-US relationship. Second, China-Russian relationship. Next, China-EU relationship. I think that includes, should include China-British relationship. And fourthly, China-Japanese relationship. I think those four relationships constitute the big power <coughs> relationships in my opinion. So how to promote a new, new type of big power relationship between China on the one hand and the United States Russia, the EU, and the Japan on the other hand. There might be some other big powers, but I think those four big power relationships should be considered the most important big power relationship. <coughs> and I think uh, to handle those big power relationships, we have different focuses, different stresses. To handle US-China relationship, I think the focus should be on how to strengthen mutual strategic trust. China and the United States now lack trust very, very much. What we lack is not something else, it's mutual trust. So for China and the United States at this moment, how can we promote mutual trust has become the most important, most in, the key and most important uh, 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 problem or issue for these two big powers. Please uh, let me put it uh, aside for a moment and we'll come back again after I touch upon the four orientations for, big, for new Chinese new diplomacy. <coughs> Second, how to handle China-Russian relationship. I think the focus should be on how to strengthen mutual strategic complementarity. China and Russia should be should be more complementary to each other. But the implications for mutual complementarity 
is there is pretty far away from the being explored, far from being developed. So I have much room for the further complementarity between China and the rest. As to China-EU relationship, I think the focus should be on how to strengthen mutual strategic interaction. China should learn how to handle its relation with EU, not only bilaterally, but multilaterally. So how to handle our relation with EU as a whole, and how to handle its relationship with each member of the EU, now it's 28 members of the EU, how to handle its relation with each of you, for instance, how to handle our relation with UK, I think should be one of the very important issues in this regard. As we all know that uh, since early last year, our mutual relationship has been frozen for some, some period of time, right? Now recently we feel that our mutual relationship is being warmed up. So how to handle and make our relationship to be further improved and strengthened? That's a big problem. Now what's the focus for China and Japan relationship? The focus should be on how to get back the idea of bottom, how to hold, hold on to the bottom line of mutual strategic benefit. You know, China-Japan relationship has been in trouble. <laughs> like you were, <laughs> you were on the verge of collapse because of a little rocky uninhabited island called the Diaoya Island. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, uh, what, what? it's whether it's uh, worth or you're doing that, right? But this is a fact that China and Japan are now in a very much trouble with each other over that little island. So how to tighten over the, the Diaoya crisis for China and Japan is very important. Because in 2008, our two countries reached a consensus to establish a mutual benefit relationship. Whether or not our two countries should hold on to this bottom line. The good news is that even now, neither of Japan or China has ever declared that it has given up the bottom line. So that means two sides, even now, have been holding on to this bottom line. This is good news. The bad news is that we're still in trouble, deep trouble, for that little island. So it probably will take time to, for us to tackle over this crisis and, uh, and really come back to the bottom, uh, uh, the bottom line of keeping this called the mutual benefit relationship. So this is a general idea of you know, my general idea about the new big power relationship between China and other uh, big powers. The second orientation for China's new diplomacy is how to promote new peripheral diplomacy. That's how to handle and even promote 
China's relationship with 11 countries. In the past few years, the peripheral situation for China is very, has been very serious. China has uh, met a lot of uh, urgent problems, particularly in its handling of territorial issues. Not only between China and Japan, but also between China and other countries, essentially the South China Sea issues, between China and Vietnam, between China and the Philippines, and even between China and India, and between China and Myanmar. You know, China now is facing a very serious situation of handling its peripheral relationship with some of the the ASEAN countries <coughs> and some of the countries in Northeast Asia and <coughs> some in the South Asia. So how to handle this relationship? I mean, of course, the, the focus should be the handling of territorial disputes. I think this is the most and the foremost, first and the foremost important issue between the two, between the two <coughs> sides. And beyond that, uh, we have uh, two or three other uh, uh, more question, uh, issues in this regard. For instance, how to handle the proliferation issue. The Korean nuclear crisis occurred in 2002. 11 years have passed. Although we have a lot of uh, breakups, but we haven't got any breakthrough. This issue is still in the deadlock. Right? And SPT, and the SPT stands for six party talks. This year is the tenth, tenth year, the ten years since the start of SPT. But the SPT has been suspended for more than four years and we still have, have not seen any hope of its resumption. I think to resume six-part XPT is one of the most urgent issues for China and other countries concerned. Because we don't want to see the proliferation of nuclear weapons of Korean Peninsula. And between India and Pakistan, there are some problems. Besides the Kashmir issue, both of the countries now have uh, nuclear weapons. And both of the two countries <coughs> refused to participate in NPT, Non-Proliferation Treaty. So China also facing this problem, right? How to persuade India and Pakistan to stop their nuclear Programs. It's very hard now. I think it's too late now, but this is a, realist, a realistic issue for them. But how to pursue the candidate to participate in the NPT while having them handle their Kashmir issue properly. So you see, in a peripheral area, we're not only facing territorial disputes issue, but also proliferation issue. So we need the new ideas to handle all these issues. Because uh, so far, 
cultures concerned have been found themselves in a security dilemma. Security dilemma. We haven't got out of security dilemma yet. We need a, we need a, to think something something new to get out of this security dilemma and to find some new pattern so that we can uh, handle all those issues in a more proper, in a more mature way. <coughs> so all these things that we should do in order to handle our you know, peripheral diplomacy much, much better. Now next, I think, uh, uh, as for <coughs> China's new diplomacy, we have to mention this, that is how to promote uh, a kind of new multilateral diplomacy. For a long, long time, China has been very accustomed to bilateral diplomacy. China, for a period, was very good, very, very, very accustomed. You find very accustomed to very, very skillful at the handling bilateral diplomacy, <coughs> but not the multi multilateral diplomacy. Now it's a high time for China to learn how to handle <coughs> multilateral diplomacy. Now recently I said this to some people uh, 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 from our government. I think we should, at least we should uh, give uh, uh, much more attention to China's active participation in the following multilateral you know, platforms or, or, or stages or what we call regimes. Multi, multiple lateral regimes. Number one is G20. Number two <coughs> is the BRICS. In the BRICS, mm -hmm. five countries are the BRICS. Golden BRICS, five <coughs> countries. China, Russia, mm -hmm. India, Brazil, Brazil and South Africa. But China should contribute more for this very important emerging multilateral regime <coughs> in regional and international affairs. And the next is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, SCO. China should have should play a more important active role in SCO. And next, I should China should take a more and more positive and constructive role in the United Nations and its sub institutions. <coughs> of course, China has been played a very important role in the United Nations and its sub institutions, but far from enough. China should play. Uh, a very important role together with other countries to push ahead with United Nations reform. So that let the United Nations play more leading role in handling regional and global issues now we are facing. Not always let other the party is the, the only superpower to to handle all those urgent uh, regional and international issues. Of course, we welcome the United States, the only superpower in the world, to play a dual role 
in having original and global issues. But first of all, we think that the United Nations should do should take the leading role, <coughs> not only superpower, right? So China, I think, a lot of things to do in this regard. And finally, I would like that China should uh, promote a kind of new people-to-people, culture-to-cultural diplomacy. But in the Confucian institution, is exactly, you know, something uh, 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 in, in under these circumstances expected to, to play a more and more important role. So this is why at the beginning of my speech, I said that the Confucius institution uh, has been a creative practice to promote people-to-people, culture-to-cultural exchanges. And we are so pleased to see and more and more Confucian institutions have been set up all over the world for this purpose. So, and I'm all excited, so we're very excited to be involved somehow in this uh, great uh, practice of uh, <coughs> Confucian institutes. And the, the purpose and mission of this time is to meet people and the faculty uh, of various uh, Confucian institutes in UK so that I can uh, not only can I learn something, but uh, I'm thinking of uh, people, scholars like me, can not only you know learn learn some, but also getting more involved, so that we can also contribute to the further development of the Confucian Institutes in this regard. And recently, I was invited to participate in the third global forum of thinking tanks in Beijing, and suddenly I found that. Thinking tanks, my goodness, thinking tanks have been playing such an important role in promoting public diplomacy in other countries. So, then, and in May this year, uh, my former students in the help set up, uh, of course, a very small thinking tank China in my name, called the Shanghai Sichuan Institute for international exchanges. So now I also have my platform, and although it's a very small, but I, I'm determined to make it the, the big thinking tanks in China to promote the scholar to scholar, people to scholar, people relationship between China and other countries. And already I, I, I put emphasis on, on the exchange relationship between China and the United States. You know, through this trip, I might include China and UK, people to people, scholar to scholar relationship. <coughs> China now has uh, set up uh, numerous sister cities and sister states and provinces between China and the United States. As I can remember, now it's uh, over 250. I don't know how many for Chinese cities and provinces and British cities and and uh, you call the countries right here, you know, also on the sister to sister sister basis. And, uh, and China has sent uh, increasing students abroad to study, not only in the United States, but in the UK. And 
So I think this is also a very important as aspect for for China to to do in order to promote people to people, culture to culture, education to education, the exchange. So I think that China's new diplomacy should include the above mentioned four orientations. New big power diplomacy, new peripheral diplomacy, new multilateral diplomacy, and new people-to-people, culture-to-culture diplomacy. I thought I still have some, some time, so uh, uh, let me add a few words about China and the US relations and China-UK relations to wrap up my speech and then I welcome your comments and questions. Just as I mentioned that uh, the focus between China and the United States now is mutual strategic trust. What China and the United States lack is not something else but mutual trust. Somebody coined a, a term for for this issue, for the deficit of trust. We find a deficit of trust between China and the United States. China and the United States established its diplomatic relations in 1979. So it has been 38 years since the establishment of diplomatic relations between the two great nations. I. My first visit to Harvard University was 1980. So I experienced most of the big events of our mutual relationship. So on the one hand, I think China and the United States have made historical progress in promoting its mutual relationship. This is a fact. Just a look at the, the mutual official visits the people-to-people visits between two countries, the momentum for cooperation in different fields in U.S.-China relationship. Look at how many strategic dialogues and consultations between China and the United States. According to recent statistics, now there are over 90, nine, over 90 dialogues. Most of them are dialogues of strategic meaning, strategic significance, over 90. So you can see, during the past over 34 years, China and U.S. relationship has been made, has been always keeping forward the motion, despite ups and downs, turns and twists. But on the other hand, we will see the lack of trust, particularly since the beginning of this century. You know, after September 11, the United States uh, has, has been experiencing an important period of its strategic readjustment, shifting its focus of global strategy from Europe <coughs> to the Middle East, and then from Middle East to Asia. China, no, the United States almost completed its new readjustment of its strategic focus from Europe to Asia by the year of 2010. 
At the same time, China started also a, a very important historical period. We call it the period of strategic opportunities. So the period of strategic readjustment for the United States. The historical period of strategic opportunities for China almost stopped at the same time. The two periods moved out simultaneously with, without much trouble at the beginning. But eventually these two periods <coughs> collided. They met and collided with each other in the year of 2010. When the United States completed its shifting Asia, they're called pivoting Asia, P-I-V-O-T, pivoting Asia in 2010, while China formally announced that China had surpassed Germany and Japan in terms of its GDP exactly in the year of 2010. So China periods of historical opportunities and the US period of strategic readjustments eventually collided in the year of 2010. <coughs> Unfortunately, this collision, this collision between China and the United States resulted into a new round of mistrust against each other. China started to, to doubt what's the intention of U.S. pivoting Asia, whether or not it, is, it was directed against China, it will contain China, or whether it will encircle China. On the other hand, the United States started to suspect China. What's the intention of China's rapid peaceful rise? Right? It had surpassed the that of Germany and Japan and almost at the same time Beijing kept saying that in about two to three years China will be able to surpass that of the United States and become number one economy in the world. That really frightened the United States. So the United started to doubt what, what's the intention of China's peaceful rise, whether it is it, it will challenge the United States, whether it will pose a new threat to the United States, or even China sooner or later will replace the United States as the leading state, leading country, at least in Asian Pacific area. This is something that has. United States at least to see. The United States does not want to see that some rising power threatening the United States <coughs> and even replacing the United States. So my friends, my fellow students and fellow colleagues, from 2010, a growing strategic suspicion has been appearing, has been taking shape, unfortunately, in China and in the United States. So how to overcome this growing mistrust between the two countries? That's the problem. That's the focus for a kind of new diplomacy 
between China and the United States. So this is why Hu Jintao visited the United States in 2011. Xi Jinping, the Captain of Vice President, visited the United States in February of 2012, last year. You know, on what date? Interesting enough, Xi Jinping visited the United States on February 14th, <laughs> Valentine's Day. So his visit you know, was, was so successful and helped a great deal to hold on this suspicion. And in June this year, Chinese President Xi Jinping and US President Obama met uh, with each other again at the sunny land in California. And that meeting turned out to be another big success. And both sides reached a new consensus to develop our mutual relationship into a new type relationship between China and the United States in the spirit of no clash, no confrontation, mutual respect, cooperation, and win-win results. You know, those are the new consensus reached by China and the United States. So now, although the suspicion, uh, I think, is still lingering there, but both sides have been taking active measures to overcome this growing suspicion. We hope that China and us can uh, resume our uh, develop, resume and, re and, re and recover the necessary trust between the two countries. But China and the United States will be able to build up a new diplomacy, a new big power relationship between the two countries. And as to China and the UK relationship, just as I said, during the past over one year, we had some difficulty, we had a difficult time, but now it's all right. Recently, three ministers of the UK visited China. The Minister of uh, Energy and Climate <coughs> Change, the Minister of uh, uh, Finance, no, Treasury, we call it Treasury? Treasury, right? And the, the, the mayor of London and, and Chinese media gave a, 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 a much, much <coughs> coverage of their visits. And I bought some newspaper, Filipino newspapers, showing how the London mayor, you know, <coughs> riding bicycle in Beijing, or in Shanghai, or in Beijing, and how he took subway in Beijing and he said, oh, how cheap it is. <laughs> <laughs> And how he ride in the road bicycle. I, I believe it's in the boundary area of Shanghai, it's a it's a newly made bicycle, unfolded bicycle. I think definitely will have a more a much a promising market in China. <laughs> <laughs> so that and 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 Minister of uh, Treasury, Orban Osman, George Osman. In a, a give a speech at Beijing University, and the Minister of Energy in a visit to Fudan University, my university. So they were very well received, and and uh, you know, the public and, and the media, you know, 
uh, spoke very highly of the recent important visits by ministers uh, from May of London from UK and said that that's a great deal promote our mutual relationship. I've been just in London for two two days and really I very much impressed by the warmth and the friendship between two countries. I'm still very very much impressed by the deep rooted culture of UK, the sustainable dynamics of London and academic vitality of the London School of Economics. I'm very excited to be here and uh, thank you very much for attention. I'll stop here and Uh, I, I think it's a very informative talk, and uh, from a Chinese scholar's perspective, uh, probably we can get uh, a general picture about China's peaceful rise. I still remember Professor Ni mentioned uh, China's rise of peace, by peace, for the peace, and I remember that, and uh, we'll never forget. And I think. Uh, how do you have any questions? And uh, since uh, Professor Lee is going to catch the train at nine, and uh, it would be better that we have for five questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Very nice uh, talk. I'm with you. And it's very nice to hear that China and China teaches right in peace, by peace, and for peace. But you must take a thought of it also. You must, when one wonders how predictable this, this might be, when could one imagine an exergy changing this course of action when the, the, government, the Chinese government, China, China's government by a small number of a quarter of people, it is not a democracy. And such governments are very unpredictable. And so, and you, 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 you were pointed out how China changes course from to cultural revolution and then back to cultural revolution to world last course and all that kind of uh, openness. So, would this all be reasonable doubt that China, which is run by a quarter of people, can change its course and it's unpredictable? So, if your, your what you call your thesis, to be more, uh, more convincing, more persuasive, more convincing. China has to show some effort to make to, to develop its democracy. Uh, democracy should be more predictable, and if China is a democracy, we will have more faith in China's uh, peaceful rise. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Can you say what moves are you making towards making democracy, if you like? Thank you very much. And, uh, in fact, I learned from your question, right? because uh, your question is focused on one point, that uh, how uh, we can make China's peaceful rights more, predict uh, more predictable, uh, China's future more predictable. Right? Uh, you're right, I think. You mentioned the one determining factor, that is uh, where China become more democratic, because German democracy Usually, it's a more predictable. Right? This is the I entirely agree with you. 
In my uh, talk just now, I mentioned uh, that China started to develop its uh, economic uh, reform in the countryside. And then it's shifting to cities. And then there's a move uh, to its uh, political reform. In China, political reform has been very slow. This is the fact. Because it's uh, easily understood. You know, when we have economic reform, just like a patient, just like a surgeon, making operations on others. When we started political reform, this is just like a surgeon to make an operation on himself. It's difficult, painful, and difficult. So it is fully understood that the white China's political reform has been so slow, taking into consideration China's one-party political system. So whether or not, in, under these political circumstances, can China, you know, move on with its political reform? My answer is right, it can, it's possible. It could be slow, but it's possible. You know, the turning, one of the turning points was when President Hu Jintao visited the United States in 2006. He wrapped up his visit at Yale University. He gave a speech there. And he emphasized that without democratization, there, there will be no China's modernization. Yes, I agree. You and I and others support this. <laughs> That's a wonderful. You know, President Hu Jintao said so, emphasized that if there's no democratization, there will be no modernization for China. This is the de determination of the top leadership of China by that time. Now how about our new top leadership headed by Xi Jinping? My impression is that Xi Jinping will continue. Although it is a slow process. You know, people at my age, when we call back the 10 years of Cultural Revolution, no human rights, no freedom, no democracy at all during 10 years cultural revolution. Compared to the 10 years cultural revolution, the difference is just like a day and night now, right? But it's, it takes more time to do so. And the second uh, uh, point I've mentioned that we should normally take democracy as uh, into consideration for <coughs> for whether or not China's future will be predictable. We have a, one more important factor, that is, we should take into consideration the change of our times. <coughs> the main trends, main tendencies of the contemporary new era since the end of Soviet, the collapse of Soviet Union, the end of Cold War, has been peace, <coughs> development <coughs> and cooperation. And democratization of international relations has been one of the irresistible tendencies in the world. China now is more and more integrated itself into the world. So China will go with the tide, not against the tide. I believe that our top leadership now or in the future, we'll be aware that if we go against the tide, 
then we should have no way out. We should go with the tide. What is the new tendency of tide of our times? Peace, development, cooperation, democracy. Democracy or international relations. So this is why I have been always talking to my American friend because I've been in the United States more frequently than to the UK. I've been to the United States more than 80 times. So I have a lot of American friends. I kept telling them now. I think uh, domestically, maybe your society is more democratic. But internationally, the United States seems very, much, very, very less democratic. The United States is you know, playing the role of uh, hegemony, you know, hegemonic policy. Always to bully other countries, always, you know, do something beyond United Nations. The United States is what kind of superpower and practice the hegemonism, right? Not, not democratic internationally. Though it is democratic at home, but not democratic abroad. <laughs> and in China, it seems a different situation, different picture. Domestic we might not be that democratic, but international China is very democratic. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell my I'm, I'm a friend that China and I should learn from each other. <laughs> so make a two society more democratic and in, and international society also democratic at the same time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to say that you've mentioned China's relationship with the US, the EU, and its other neighbors. Can you provide any comments on China's relationship with the African nations? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I missed your last uh, phrase. Um, the relationship between China and? On China, China's relationship with the African nations. Uh, African. African. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you cut off my weakness. <laughs> Must be. In other way here, I'm thinking of what's new with China's diplomacy. I mentioned big power, mentioned peripheral, I mentioned the multilateral, I mentioned the public diplomacy and, and so on and so forth. Originally, really, I want to add one more. That is a new third world country diplomacy. <laughs> that will include Africa and Latin America. But here I think when I saw the multilateral relationship, I think the relationship between China and African countries should be included in that regard. Under that heading of multilateral relationship. Just as I mentioned the the BRICS. China BRICS relationship. BRICS of course includes South Africa. Yes, uh, uh, African countries are great friends of China. In 1971, it was African friends who helped China in the United Nations in passing a resolution to resume China's legitimate seat in the United Nations. So Mao Zedong once said, we should never forget what African <coughs> friends helped us in 1971 when China resumed our United Nations seat. seat. So it is our duty to help African countries <coughs> in their economic development. 
and it is our goal to further promote our relationship with other countries. And it so happened that the two, uh, last week uh, in Shanghai, I was invited to uh, a, re a reception. And on, on the occasion, I met with uh, over 20 African ambassadors to China. I still keep their name cards. I was so, I feel so good, you know, to get to know so many African ambassadors and consuls general in Beijing and Shanghai that all gathered in Shanghai and we'll talk about the future relationship between China and African countries. So on the whole, I think that China's relation with Africa is good. Maybe we'll have some problems, but on the whole, it's, it's good. Because once I uh, was invited to give a series of lectures in Germany, and uh, uh, in my class, there were, there were about 20 uh, graduate students coming from uh, uh, eight different countries, and the five students came from Africa. From that, from time to time, sometimes they challenge me about China's eight programs in, in Africa. Some of the programs were not perfect, and some, uh, uh, I think, uh, even you and they, 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 they give me some examples uh, how we practice uh, in a child labor there. Know, uh, to explore some natural resources there at uh, very unfair uh, conditions and so on and so forth. So I think definitely there are some problems. But our government has paid more and more attention to correct those problems and we want to promote our, promote our relation with African countries. Do you know uh, every uh, two years that uh, there are summit meetings between China and African countries and once every two week, two years. And we invited uh, over 50 different African countries leaders together in Beijing and talk about the future programs and you know, China, you know, some, any every time the Chinese government came up with some new projects and programs to promote the cooperation exchanges between China and African countries. So you're right. At the, uh, <coughs> the next time, I should maybe I think of to add one more aspect of China new diplomacy to promote the relationship with uh, other third world countries. So thank you very much. Thank you for the lecture, Professor. A question. You mentioned that uh, natural resources in China are scarce, uh, they are limited. Yeah. Uh, China has got a lot of money, goes to Africa, other nations, uh, other continents you buy. But one of your neighbors, Russia, which is quite big, huge, are you from Russia? Down Polish. And uninhabited areas of uh, Siberia, there's a lot of Chinese people that go and live there, work, make businesses, make the Establish businesses. Don't you think that in about say 10, 15 years time, <coughs> uh, in far eastern areas uh, of Russia, there be there could be a problem when these people realize, look, we are Chinese, but we don't live in China. Let's join our own country. What, what, what do you think about this? Could this be a problem? Now, just now I mentioned uh, China-Russian relationship and the focus on the strength and the mutual strategy complementarity. 
with the America being able to almost have a naval strong stranglehold over oil imports and trade into China, and also being able to enter into its exclusive economic zone whenever it likes. Do you think China can accept this? And if it's looking to change it, how can it do that peacefully? Especially including the other South China Sea nations. Uh, I also touch upon the U.S.-China relationship in this regard. In recent years, uh, the, the clash between China and the United States was somehow focused on the clash between core national interests. Have you ever heard the concept, the core national interests? The core national, of course, is focused on sovereignty and territorial integrity. So China always regards that our problem with the United States over the South China Sea issue is an issue which touch upon the core national interests. So for, for China, China you know, can not make much concession on, in this world because we think that this is China's core national interests. And the United States uh, has been challenging China's core national interests. Before 2010, the United States uh, had been emphasizing or had been emphasizing, saying that uh, on the one hand, China, the United States took no stand, no position to whatever this island or that area in South China Sea belong to China or belong to Vietnam, belong to the Philippines. For the disputes between China and Vietnam, China and Philippines, and other Asian countries, the United States said, we did not take any position. It's your problem. Secondly, the United States said, we were not involved. We are not involved. We have not been involved. We will not be involved in any territorial dispute, disputes in South China Sea between China and other countries concerned. And we tend to believe that the United States had been doing so before 2010. But after 2010, when China, when the United States was <coughs> busy with its pivoting Asia, <coughs> to be frank, that the United States started changing its position. I don't think that from 2010, the United States still, still held out the position of not getting involved in this area. The United States started getting involved in disputes between China and Vietnam, and between China and the Philippines and other countries. The United States appeared very much supportive to Vietnam for its illegal requests, illegal you know, occupations of some of the islands, which was totally belonging to China. And the United States decided to support the Philippines, such a tiny country, no navy, no force, no you know, air force, to you know, obviously make some troubles against China and claiming that, that the little Huangyang Island belonging to the Philippines. That's ridiculous, you know. And the United States to support the Philippines. So this is the essence. And, and furthermore, 
that China and the United States uh, had uh, some differences over the navigation freedom. The United States that uh, we now, uh, you know, uh, 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 our negative uh, navigation freedom now has been, you know, very much uh, uh, obstructed by China. China, we find China always in the way for free navigation. So this is why the former state secretary Hillary Clinton, <coughs> on one of the ARF meeting, uh, ASEAN Forum, ASEAN Regional Forum, you know, attacked Chinese government for its uh, obstruction, uh, uh, for its obstacles to the free navigation of the United States in South China Sea. So from 2010, China and United States has been quarreling, arguing the quarreling uh, over those South China Sea issues. So it's uh, very fortunate that whether China can uh, uh, accept U.S. proposals or positions, I, I think this is not the right time for, for China to, I don't think China can accept the U.S. proposal or position at this moment. So do you think China should play the waiting game until they're even so China and the world deal with it? During the court, during the process of building up a new diplomacy, new big power relationship, uh, both sides will sit down and will find a way out for that. And recently, uh, our new foreign minister, Wang Yi, during his first trip to the United States, he made a speech at uh, the Brookings Institution and he suggests that the building up of new big power relations between China and the United States should start with Asian issues. And he listed the four Asian issues to test US-China new relationship. The first issue is the issue of Afghanistan. Yeah. By the end of next year, when US troops you know, are pulled out from Afghanistan, and how China and Russia can cooperate in maintaining the stability, security of Afghanistan in, in the post, not post, in the post uh, financial era and in the era of anti international uh, terrorist era. So, how China and Russia can cooperate after the US pulls out its troops from Afghanistan? <coughs> so, this is the first issue. The second issue is South China Sea. The third issue is Diaoyi Island between China and Japan. And the fourth issue is the Korean Peninsula nuclear issue between China and the South Korea, DPRK, <coughs> right? How China, you know, you know, can do something new to, to persuade North Korea to come back to the SPT for a new solution, for the final solution for the crisis on the Korean Peninsula. So our new foreign minister listed the four issues. And uh, as I can feel that the United States responded very positively. So I believe that uh, under the structure of uh, over 90 dialogues and one working team between China and the United States will start their job to sit down and talk and how to minimize our differences and seek more commonalities <coughs> and then find some new 
ideas and new approaches to calm down the situation there and to you know, deal with those crises in a proper and a mature way. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry to say that uh, we don't have time for the questions. Uh, and anyway, we'd like to thank you very much for your questions. And finally, I'd like to, uh, to invite you to join me uh, to give our thanks to Professor Yuan Sakeda.